The hope of resurrection. The four points that we're going to cover today, just so you can follow along, I'm going to give it to you ahead of time, is the critical nature of bodily resurrection. The critical nature of bodily resurrection. Second point, the clear order of bodily resurrection. Thirdly, the climax, the climax of bodily resurrection. And fourthly, the conviction of bodily resurrection. The conviction. We're talking about hope today. Isn't that pretty obvious? To have hope, we must understand, point number one, the critical nature, two words, critical nature of bodily resurrection. Verse 33, at the end, towards the end, Paul says, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Satan is a corrupter. Satan has his secret agents everywhere in every local church. Satan has false teachers promoting lies. And in the issue at Corinth was false teaching. Verse 12. Let's turn our eyes to verse 12 of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Now if Christ is preached, certainly Christ is preached, that he has been raised from the dead, comma, this is the situation, Christ has been properly preached in Corinth. Paul himself preached Christ in Corinth. Comma, then how do some among you see that there is no resurrection of the dead? False teaching was spreading like gangrene throughout, throughout Corinth. Everyone was being affected by this. Everyone was questioning themselves, questioning the hope that lies within them. This is the issue that Paul is addressing here. The Corinthians, they believed in Christ's resurrection. Otherwise, you couldn't be a Christian. He calls them brothers and sisters. But the lie that was being spread here, brothers and sisters, is this. Christ may have resurrected, but there's no bodily resurrection for us. They said, why do they think that? It's their background, Greek philosophy. Acts 17, Paul is preaching in Athens, preaching the resurrection of Christ. And do you remember what, how the Athenians responded to him? They sneered at him. They mocked him. They, they like scoffed at him. Like, what is this? What is this? What kind of religion? What kind of cell job is that? And you got to realize Athens is about 55 miles uh, across the Isthmus to uh, uh, Corinth. They're neighboring cities. And Athens is a center of wisdom and knowledge. Huge influence. Big brother to Corinth. And they had this philosophy of dualism. Dualism says that the spirit, our inner being, is good. But we're encased and trapped into our human bodies, which are evil. And I think this quote would help. David Pryor writes, The body was seen as a prison, okay, as a prison. And death marked the release of the captive soul to soar to the real world, of which everything on this earth is only a shadow. So the goal of life was not necessarily to say, how long can I stay in my physical body, but how can I be released out of prison? That was the prevailing idea there. And so this teaching was spreading, like I said, like gangrene throughout the Corinthian church. And the Christians there were getting confused. What? What kind of goal is that? Why do I want to be stuck with this body, right? This is what they're thinking. Oh, so, so Paul began a systematic, logical attack on this heresy. So verse 13 and 16 says, But if there is no resurrection, no bodily resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. Verse 16, For if the dead 
are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. No bodily resurrection, that means Christ could not, could not have resurrected. He didn't say did not, could not have resurrected. If then. Leon Morris uh, comments on this. Paul is reasoning that since Christ was genuinely human, fully God, fully man, we preached on that last week, and died a human death, Christ died a human death, if men are not raised, neither has Christ been raised. Very logical. Since Christ is a man, if there's no bodily resurrection, he's part of that issue too. In other words, if the Greeks are right, that there is no bodily resurrection, the gospel has just been neutered of its power. It's been drained of all its fuel to move anything, to change anything. It's like discovering that the house that you bought and you've been saving all your money for is built on the San Andreas Fault. It's about to fall through the cracks. It's like buying the dream house that you thought you had on the cliff overlooking the ocean and you're finding out the, the, the foundation is crumbling underneath you. Right, so this is devastating. So Paul needed to fortify the foundation of Christianity here. In essence, the, the Corinthians were left without any hope. So verse 14 through 19 chronicles the series of chain reactions that take place. The, all the things that fall through the crack. And they, in essence, they have hopelessness. They're left with nothing. If Christ has not been raised, verse 14, that the preaching is vain. The content of our message is worthless, is empty, it's powerless. Verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, our faith is vain, it's powerless, it's meaningless. If Christ has not been raised, verse 15, we're all false witnesses. That means Peter, James, and Paul are liars. They did not see the resurrected Christ. That means that the apostles, including the twelve, are liars. That means that the 500 plus that claim to have saw him are liars. If Christ has not been raised, verse 17, our faith is worthless, meaningless, chasing after the wind. If Christ has not been raised, verse 17, we're still in our sin. We're still guilty. We're unforgiven. We're going to be judged someday. If Christ has not been raised, verse 18, dead Christians, think about beloved ones who have passed on. Paul saying, they're gone, they're lost forever. You will not see them again if Christ has not been raised. That's a big if. Verse 19, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. No bodily resurrection, no resurrection of Christ. This is critical in nature. It's as a first important as Paul talks about. And can you see how the relationship is? How Christ's resurrection is completely tied to our own resurrection. Right? That's why we have to understand the critical nature of the resurrection, of bodily resurrection, in order to have hope. This is where now, okay, if you didn't know that before, now you know more. If you already knew it, now you understand more. Greater hope is lying up in you, welling up in you now. And the, the hope of resurrection, point number two, will follow the clear order of bodily resurrection. Clear order, fill in the blank, point number two. Verse 20 here, let me point here. Paul is, stops the hypotheticals now, the, all the if and thens. 
He goes, okay, now he lays down the hammers of verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. In no unclear terms, no uncertain terms, Christ is saying, uh, Paul saying Christ has been raised. We're just talking hypotheticals before. Let's not get confused. Christ has been raised from the dead. And as verse 20 goes on, it says the, Christ is the first fruits of those who are asleep. First fruits, Old Testament connection here. To set, spend a quick second in Leviticus 23, the Israelites are called to bring the first fruits of their produce or their harvest to the temple as an act of worship, as a, as a preview or a sample of things to come. And then they were to enjoy the harvest. First fruits belong to God. And then they were to enjoy the rest of the harvest. So Christ represented the first fruits of the harvest of life. That's us, which is to follow. And Christ's resurrection needed to come first. And as the scriptures go on to say in verse 21 and 22, Paul gives us an illustration here. So we're, as you can see, if you want to follow the sermon, I simply just march down the text. So if you have your Bibles, you could, that's my outline, basically. I give some headings, but we're going to verse 21 now. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Paul's illustrations, two bloodlines, two family trees, two types of harvests. Family number one, or tree number one. In Adam, the harvest of death. In Christ, the harvest of life. Now, what do you mean by this, Pastor? Well, let's turn to Romans chapter 5. It's the next, it's the book to the left. It's just moved to the left some. Romans chapter 5. We'll just spend our time here to understand what is Paul talking about. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. In Adam all die. Verse 12, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, Adam's sin, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. In essence, if you're a human being, which we all are, from our forefathers, the head, Adam himself, are the first man who represents mankind. Through his sin, we've all been infected by the sin virus. In effect, he's transmitted, in a sense, a spiritual aids to us, where we're, what infects us as soon as we're formed in the womb. Like he's, he's transferred the spiritual gene of sin down to us. And this is what the Bible's saying here, Romans 5, verse 12. Let's jump down to Romans 5, 18 now. So then, as through one transgression... Adam, there resulted condemnation to all men. Judgment. We're all sinners. Even so, through one act of righteousness, that's talking about Christ, the sinless one, going to the cross, there resulted justification of life to all men. Verse 19, for as through the one man's disobedience, Adam again, the many were made sinners, all of mankind, humanity. Even so, however, through the obedience of the one, that's Christ, the many will be made righteous. So in essence, Paul is saying, if you identify in Adam, you relate to Adam. Adam is, my, is the one who defines me. You're part of the harvest of death. 
However, good news, but if you identify with Christ, you're part of the harvest of life. Those who are marked with Christ. But verse 23, there's a clear order here in the resurrection. We're all going to enjoy resurrection someday, but there's an order. Verse 23, at the top of verse 23, but each in his own order. This own order has this military sense in the original language. It means like proper order. There's a proper sequence that needs to unfold like dominoes that go down. This one domino has to go down first. That's Christ. He's the first domino and then sets off a train reaction for the rest of us to be resurrected who are in Christ. He said there's an order. What is the order of resurrection? Christ, the first fruits. He's number one. Christ is the first fruits. He is the firstborn among the dead. Colossians 1, uh, Rome, uh, Revelation 1. And then what happens? After that, after Christ's resurrection, those who are Christ, those who are in Christ, every single Christian at his coming, when, at his coming, parousia, when Christ comes back, when he returns. And as, as we sang in the song, at the rapture, when he comes back, there will be an event when he comes back where he will collect his people who are in Christ. And if you're dead, your body will resurrect to rejoin with your spirit. The Bible says there will be a shout of God. There will be a trumpet of God sounding in this event. Christ is coming back. Christ is coming back. And then when he comes back in Revelation 19, the second coming to establish his kingdom, a different event from the rapture, He's going to be coming riding a white steed, a white horse. And then more people who come to Christ later on will be resurrected as well. And then he sets up his millennial kingdom, a thousand-year reign. Even there in that time, people are able to be converted to Christ and more bodies will be resurrected. So in essence, this harvest is every single believer, every single believer from past, present, to even future. Every single genuine believer is going to receive a resurrected body, a glorified body. Next week we'll talk a lot more about that. So the next section is about that. But we're going to receive glorified bodies. Just a little thought here as I was just preparing this sermon. My mind came to those who've lost loved ones recently. Seems like I'm at a funeral every other week recently. Attended a funeral yesterday. Those perhaps who have failing bodies right now, struggling in your health. Perhaps your minds are failing. You're forgetting a lot more. And that's all part of the fallen body that we have right now. In Christ... Everything's going to be new. Someday you will receive a brand new mind. Clear thinking. Everything's going to be new. Your body's going to feel better. It's going to be even better. I can't wait to preach next week to you already, but that's next week. But it's going to be better. This is a word of encouragement. We're not going to be just some spiritual beings just floating in eternity someplace. We're going to have bodies. And everything's going to be back to how it's supposed to be, even better. So there's a clear order in the bodily resurrection. Christ is first, second, every single believer. I mean, think about it. If the Greeks are right, 
No bodily resurrection meant no resurrection of Christ. No resurrection of Christ meant no first fruits. No first fruits means no harvest. There's an order. There's an order. There's an order. Let's go to this third point here. What is the scope of our hope? What are we actually hoping for as well? I mean, this, this third point is probably going to be the longest here, but this is the most cosmic. It takes some time here, and you're going you're gonna to appreciate this. What is the scope of our hope? The climax, fill in the blank, climax of bodily resurrection. Verse 24, at the top, he says, then comes the end. Then comes the end. Verse 24, then comes the end. Telos. Telos means the climax, the culmination, the crescendo. The crescendo of resurrection. This is exactly what we're waiting for. So listen up. This is, you need to know this. This is going to add to our hopefulness as we navigate through life here. Verse 24, continue on. When he, Christ, hands over the kingdom to God, to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he, Christ, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. When Christ has abolished, when he's destroyed, eliminated, subdued the world, Christ is coming back to get this done. And as Brother Steve read earlier, this is a picture of what it's going to be like. Psalm 110 is an, in, is an enthronement uh, psalm where we see Christ on the throne. Let's turn to Psalm 110. So right, right in the middle of your Bibles, in essence, Psalm 110. This is prophecy of the end times. This is prophecy of what's going to happen. Psalm 110. This is David. I'm going to give you a little insight. David is writing the psalm. It's a song. And, and, and through the power of God, through the Holy Spirit, he's able to have kind of eavesdrop into this Trinitarian conversation that God the Father has with God the Son. <laughs> what a privilege. And he records this for us. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, the Father, God the Father said to my Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son, sit at my right hand. Does this sound familiar, what I just read? Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Paul is alluding to this. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. You are going to rule everyone that hates God. You're taking over. This is what I have for you, son, my son. Verse 3, your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. That's us. That's you and me. We're coming down with them to, to witness this. I don't know how much we're going to be helping but we're going to be cheerleading a lot and watching this in awe. This is us. We're coming back from heaven to see this. I'll explain more in a second. Let's jump down to verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. Kings, every ruler, every president, every politician, Every prime minister, every czar, every dictator will be crushed. Anyone that's against God. It's going to happen. This is written a thousand years before Christ. Let's go to verse 6. He will judge among the nations. Every nation will be judged. Every nation will be crushed. Every kingdom that's in rebellion against God whether it's a democratic republic or a communist state, 
whether it's socialistic or a monarchy, doesn't matter. Every single nation will be crushed. Look what happens next, verse 6. He will fill them with corpses, dead bodies. He, Christ, will shatter the chief men, powerful men, over a broad country, whether you're rich or poor, educated or uneducated, stately, unstately, man or woman, doesn't matter. All enemies of God will be judged. Verse 7 of Psalm 110. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Christ will be satisfied. That's what that means. It's a metaphor of how Christ is going to satisfy his thirst for vengeance. Therefore, he will lift up his head. That's a, that's a way of saying in victory. Christ is going to take a victory lap when all this is set and done. So whoever rebels against God will be judged, will be considered God's enemy. Christ will execute judgment. I mean, all these nations who promote humanistic ideals, who make man at the center, who mock God and say that God doesn't exist, who fight against the church, who persecute the church, who assault his word and say you can't trust God's word, every government who defy God by redefining marriage, every government who defy God by but with men and women of depraved minds who promote transgenderism and things like that, will be judged. These are all affronts against God. These are all enemies. These are all rebellious moves against God. Serious business. So whatever is disheartening you today, you may be wondering, like, well, what's going on in our nation What's going on at my university? Perhaps relationships, somebody's oppressing you. Whether on the macro or the micro, where only you know, everything's going to be judged. Jesus Christ will have his way. And because what I'm saying is, you don't have to wait till Christ's coming to know that Jesus is on the throne. I'm just going to rattle off some verses here just so you understand. Jesus Christ is on the throne right now. Ephesians 1, 20 to 23 says this. He raised him. God the Father raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. He's there already. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Right now, Christ is on the throne. And he put all things in subjection under his feet, Christ's feet, and gave him, Jesus Christ, his head over all things to the church. Christ is the head of the church. We've, we've heard that many times, which is the body which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. To your right if you can. I'm just going to read these things for us to let you know Christ is on the throne right now. Philippians 2, 9. For this reason also God highly exalted him. This reason that he humbled himself and died on the cross and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Christ is supreme. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, everybody bows to Christ. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is what? Jesus Christ is Lord, that's right, to the glory of God the Father. 
Colossians 1, 16 says this, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. He created them all. He set up every government. God is in control. Christ is him. All things have been created through him and for him. Everything was created for Christ. He is before all things. Christ is above all things. And in him, Christ, all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, the first fruits. There it is again. So that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Jesus Christ is on the throne. So as you are going through life right now, perhaps confused and not knowing what's going on, it's okay. Christ knows. Jesus Christ is on the throne. You don't have to wait to the end times to, to realize this. He's here on the throne, and he is with us. Lo, I am with you to the end of age, he says. Isn't that so comforting? Think about that. The God of the universe says, I am with you, church, and also individually, no matter what you're going through. And just know, the one that's persecuting you right now, he or she will answer to the Lord someday, either by way of the cross or by way of judgment. Nothing goes without being addressed. And then one more event, one more enemy that needs to be abolished, verse 26. This is a big one, obviously. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. Jesus says that he is the living one who owns the kings of death, the keys of death and of Hades. Jesus Christ is going to abolish death. Turn to the right to the last book in the Bible, Revelation chapter 20. Let's see what happens. How does Jesus Christ actually abolish death? In a sense, he's already abolished death on the cross. Amen? He defeated death. We don't have to uh, worry about eternal death anymore. But people are still dying physically, right? There are still difficult things happening in this side of eternity, but there will come a day when all that's even abolished. Let's read together Revelation 20, verse 11 to 15. This is heaven now. This is heaven. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, that's Christ, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. And no place was found for them. You cannot hide from Christ. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, John writes, the Apostle John, standing before the throne. Like I said, rich or poor, great or small, strong or weak, prominent, or nobody knows you, they're all there. And books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Now in that, verse 13, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged. So there's another resurrection that takes place. you see that? Let's go through the order here. Who was the first to rise from the dead? Christ, Jesus Christ. Number two, in whatever, however many sequences, every single Christian And then thirdly, finally, who rises from the dead? Sinners. Sinners. Sinners will experience a resurrection too someday. And they were judged after they were resurrected, every one of them according to their deeds. Verse 14, then death 
and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Done. Death and Hades destroyed now into the lake of eternal fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire in verse 15. What a day of gnashing and weeping right here. What a day this is going to be. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, comma, if, that's the if, comma, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's eternal judgment. That's eternal judgment. Keep your finger in Revelation here. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to go back back to Revelation in a second. Let's read verse 27. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. Meaning, when Christ has ruled and controlled everything and got everything under control. He's already in control, but once he's judged and put all things in order, he's going to show that he's still submitted to the Father. Christ still humbles himself after all that and is ready to hand over the kingdom back to the Father. When Verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. Can you see that Christ, the humble king who rules, has this special love relationship with the Father? Father, this is your kingdom. Back to the Father. Look at the Trinitarian love relationship. You are, we are seeing so many facets right now. God allows us to see a glimpse into their relationship. Do you see that? Do you see that? Now flip, let's flip back to Revelation 21. I told you your fingers would be handy there. So what happens next? This is important now. It doesn't end with a lake of fire. Brothers and sisters, the telos, what is the climax? What is the, what is the grand finale here, okay? We need to understand what is redemption moving towards? What is the grand finale? Revelation 21, verse 1. This is John. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. Second Peter talks about how like a, day, like a thief, the, the day of the Lord comes. With a roar, the heavens pass away. With intense heat, all the elements are burned up. So in a moment, in a moment, there's an atomic implosion where all of creation is destroyed and burned up in intense heat, the Bible says. And what are we left with? Let's go back to Revelation here, 21, verse 1. And the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. Sea, any chaos. Sea represents chaos, turbulence. No one can control the sea. Amen? And if you have the finest boat in the world, if the sea wants to take over, it'll take over. Only Jesus Christ has been able to calm the seas. Verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven 
from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, will be with God. New creation, new heaven, new earth. Everything is back to how it was supposed to be. Verse 4, And he will wipe away every tear, no more death, no more sorrow, tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. Death is gone. Death is defeated. There will no longer be any mourning or crying. No more funerals. No more sadness. No more depression. All that. Christ is taking care of or pain. No more physical pain. No more emotional pain. The first things have passed away. That's with the old earth and the old heavens. Burned up as Second Peter talks about. Verse 5, and he who sits on the throne said, Christ, behold, I am making all things new. The climax of resurrection. And he said, write for these words are faithful and true. Verse 6, then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's Christ, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. Forgiveness, free life, grace, the gospel right here. Verse 7, he who overcomes will inherit these things. And I will be his God and he will be my son. Wow. That's the crescendo of resurrection. That's where we're moving towards, brothers and sisters. Even creation has a resurrection. Christ, first fruits. Christians, next non-believers next, and then all of creation. Massive harvest. That's what we're looking forward to. This is the hope that lies within us. Let's finish up here real real quickly here. In conclusion here, let's finish up with a fourth point. Hope is rooted in the conviction of bodily resurrection. Resurrection. Hope is rooted in the conviction of bodily resurrection. Verse Let me go back to Corinthians here, verse 29. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Why are we also in danger every hour? Why do we risk our lives? Why do we risk our necks? Why do we risk our promotion and our jobs? Why do we risk hard and difficult conversations with people? Why do I risk my reputation? Why do I risk being canceled out on social media? Why do I do all those things? Verse 31, I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. Paul was willing to suffer because of the hope of resurrection. We could sacrifice also because of the hope, the certain hope, not worldly hope, the certain hope of resurrection. We could submit to Christ because he is Lord, because we're living for the next life. This is not it. This is not what we're hoping for here. For Christians, let me say something very clearly here. I'm talking to Christians right now. For Christians, this is going to be your worst life that you're going to have. No matter how good it is, you might be on a high note right now, but this is the worst quality of life that you're going to experience, okay? Now let me turn the coin here. For my non-Christian friends in here, hear me now. This is very important that you understand what I'm about to tell you. 
if you're not in Christ, have you not, if you haven't confessed your faith in Christ, haven't committed to following Christ, if you're letting sin dominate you, this is your best life right now. This is your best life right now. Let me finish up here with verse 34. Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. Corinthians, stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Remember what we talked about. Whatever you believe is how you're going to act. If you're not having a strong hope in the, in, in the bodily resurrection, you're going to live for today. You're going to live for today. You're going to invest in today. And he's talking to the brotherhood and sisterhood here. Let me read this quote for, by Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards. He says this, How can you expect to dwell with God forever? Let me read that again. How can you expect to dwell with God forever if you so neglect and forsake him here? You, you cannot claim to be a Christian and have no change. You cannot be, say and have confidence that you're going to approach that day and know that your name is written in the book of life if you don't care about Christ, if you don't care to obey him, if you're okay with that sin right now, if you're actually okay with it and you're aware of it and you're okay with it, there might be a problem there. Jonathan Edwards, let me read that for you one more time. How can you expect to dwell with God forever if you so neglect and forsake him here? My friends, I want to speak to you. If you're not in Christ, do you want to escape the lake of fire? Are you gripped right now? Does God have your attention right now? Is the Lord trumpeting in your heart right now? Are you being pricked to the heart right now? Is he calling you for today right now? Do you want this hope? Call upon him. Whoever would call upon the name of the Lord will not be turned away. He will receive you. Jesus is a friend of sinners. I know him. He will receive you. Believe that at the cross, Jesus Christ, God himself, fully God, fully man, took on the wrath of God, the wrath that you will experience in the lake of fire. Jesus, a sinless one, took on God's wrath was treated like a sinner and died. And on the third day, like we sang earlier, he rose to life. The risen Lord. Jesus is alive. Commit to following Jesus Christ as your Lord. He's Savior, but he's Lord, as we just read. Currently and it'll be super obvious then as well. He's Lord, he's Savior and Lord. Denounce your sins. Walk away from your sins. It's not going to be perfect. I could tell you that. Christian life is a, is a battle. It's an up and down battle. But you're in the fight as a Christian. Commit yourself to him. Trust in his word. Follow him. And he will wash away 
every single sin from your soul. And not only that, he'll come to be with you. He'll come to live in you. Do you want this hope? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time to preach your word. What a riveting section of scripture. Thank you for taking us to the heights of heaven today. Thank you for 1 Corinthians 15. Father God, I pray, Lord, that we would understand more and more the hope that lies within the resurrection, the hope that lies within us, the hope of glory. Christ in you. Thank you, Lord. Father, I pray for those right now who are being trumpeted into the heaven of God, into the kingdom, as the gates of heaven are wide open right now for them. I pray, Lord, that they will respond to your invitation and they will cry out to you and admit that they are sinners and they sinned against you. And they will throw themselves at your feet and beg for forgiveness. And they will receive and trust that you have forgiven them. And they will commit to following after you as their Lord. Father, I pray for the brotherhood and sisterhood here as well. I pray we have a deeper understanding of the hope that lies within us, Lord. That this is not a general hope that we have. This is very specific. Lord, you are a very detailed God. And I thank you how you detailed it in the scriptures and to your living word. I pray, Lord, that our belief in you gets stronger and we will live our entire lives with a climax of resurrection in mind. Jesus, we thank you. Jesus, we love you. Jesus, thank you that even sitting on the throne, you're listening to our prayers right now. Thank you, Lord. What a privilege it is to hear your word. Elevate our affections for you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.